2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of
0: iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And it is Monday, the day of each week that we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind mailbag. If you've never gotten in touch with us before, why not give it a ch- uh Give it a I was going to say try and chance at the same time. I think I said, give it a chai. Uh, yeah. Well, why not give it a try or a chance or a chai at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Whatever you want to send is fair game. We of course always appreciate feedback on recent episodes, especially if you have something interesting to add to a topic we have talked about. Uh, I guess this is the first listener mail we're doing since the new year and we've got it. We've got a backlog. A lot of messages came in, uh, before we were out for the holidays. So, uh, So a lot of them have tags like Happy Holidays and such. That is the reason.
1: Yeah. Now, before we get into the mailbag proper, I'm going to go ahead and throw a couple of things up here at the top of the episode. First of all, uh, you know, we haven't really been hammering this uh, in a while, but if you like the show. Uh, rate and review the show wherever you have the power to do. So that, that helps us out. That's a, that's a nice gesture that you can do. Uh, another thing, if you listen to the show on an Apple device through like some sort of Apple app or what have you, uh, go in there and check out the settings and all. Make sure that you are still subscribed to the show. Make sure you're still getting downloads and so forth. Uh, just another thing that our uh,
0: internal departments have told us to, um, to flag for listeners. And to be totally clear, if you're wondering why the reason is Apple sometimes stops uh, auto-downloads for people who are intending to be subscribed to the show. So that may have happened to you. Just make sure that you're still getting the automatic downloads that you want. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure,
1: yeah, everything is the way you want it to be. That's all we ask. All right, Joe, what do we have? Uh, What do you want to kick things off with here?
0: Let's see. Well, maybe you should read the first one here, Rob. This is about your uh, monster fact. Is this about DC's Dracula or some other kind of uh, vampire-related monster fact? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, this one comes to
1: us from Mike. Um, it might, I think it might be a response to, yeah, I think it's a response to something on the Monster Fact. So Mike says, in this week's Monster Fact episode, you mentioned the mythos around vampires' obsession with counting. This also came up in last week's Doctor Who episode, Wild Blue Yonder. The Doctor is able to delay two evil aliens by convincing them that they had to follow the rules of monsters in our universe, which includes vampires having to count the grains of salt the Doctor pours on the floor in front of them. Um, I also gained a new appreciation for Sesame Street from the episode of Monster Fact and last week's Doctor Who. I always thought the Count you know, one, ha ha ha, two, ha ha, was just a clever play on the word count and the name Count Dracula. But now I realize this character was actually based on real vampire mythos. Thanks for reading, Mike. So, yeah, I think this was uh, uh, talking about the magic of knots in this episode um, and about how, you know, you have this uh, one. There are a lot of ideas regarding vampires in the sort of folkloric and fictional uh, worlds. But uh, you do encounter the idea that if you leave a complex knot out, they will have to untie it, and maybe they'll get caught up when the sun rises, and then, you know, presto, they're they're burnt to a crisp. Or leaving out grains of something for them to count is another variation, that they will be compelled to do so, and it might delay their escape
0: from the sun. That in itself is interesting, but I— I don't know if I've ever come across an explanation for, like, why vampires would be thought to display this obsessive-compulsive type behavior, the the need to count or the need to untie.
1: Um, I'm not entirely sure either, but you see, you know, variations of this in in other creatures and other lores. And I think particularly with knots, it comes down to, like, just the very old... Uh, magical tradition surrounding knots. Uh, we talked about this in uh, some of our core episodes as well recently. The idea that, that uh, you know, on a very basic level in, these, uh, in, in magical thinking, you know, to, to tie a knot is to transform something. It is to bind something. And when you extrapolate that through the worlds of magic, you know, it can, it's something that can take place across time, across space. It can bind wills. It can bind souls. And it can command monsters.
0: mm all right, we got a bunch of messages in response to our series on, uh, not series, it was just one episode on rat kings, uh, the, the idea of rats that have become tangled at the tail or have their, their tails tied in knots. I guess this actually connects to the same thing, uh, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. episode uh, where you were talking about knots uh, and vampires having to untie knots. Would a vampire have to untie a rat king? Well, it remains to be seen good question and of course one thing that came up in the rat kings episode is uh the question of whether rat kings occur naturally or whether they are all of uh, a combination of false reports and hoaxes uh and i think we could not settle that question entirely though i in the end was mostly persuaded by a couple of sources we were reading that came down on the side of rat kings probably do occur naturally probably it occurs when uh rats of a specific species of Rattus Rattus, the black rat, huddle together in a nest. They get their tails uh, entangled and uh, stuck together somehow, maybe uh, stuck together with a sticky substance or frozen together somehow. And then they, uh, by their natural movements, kind of make the problem worse and tie their tails in a knot, ultimately that they're unable to escape. But there's still a question uh, as to whether this does happen in nature or whether it's people, you know, taking rats and doing some kind of weird surgery to them to to create these ginny Hanover type uh, 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 sort of taxidermy hoax objects. Mm. Jim has some commentary on that. Jim says, Hi Robert and Joe. Season's greetings to you both, your families, and your listeners. Love the show, been a longtime listener from Canberra down under. In regards to the Rat King episode, I can see how very young rats may get their tails tangled in a nest, especially if the nest is small and high populations of rats are inside the nest. But as an environmental and domestic pest controller, I have destroyed hundreds of nests and never seen this in a nest. I've used an arrangement of traps in order to control these populations. Uh, With this method, we will sometimes trap the rats by their tails. And 100% of the time, the rats will, uh, warning here, gnaw off their tails. Mm. Why I'm a bit skeptical is that the tails range from juvenile tails to large adult tails. Just thought I would add my experience to this one. Take care and keep up the great work. Cheers, Jim. Uh, Well, thanks, Jim. That is interesting information. And I would wonder, I guess, first of all, what species of rat your experiences are with, because... As I was saying a minute ago, basically all of the credible reports of rat kings are Rattus Rattus, a.k.a. the black rat, and not some other species. So if it's true that uh, Rattus Rattus will somehow gnaw off or otherwise detach its tail when trapped by the tail, I I think that would make me more skeptical of the idea that rat kings do occur naturally and that the reports of people finding them are naturally uh, occurring objects. Because why wouldn't they just detach their tails like they do in these other uh, situations where they become trapped? But uh, yeah, the, yeah the, that that's interesting. Thank you, Jim.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's always great to hear from folks who have—I uh, mean, sometimes grim, obviously—to hear from folks who have expertise in a given area. But it's always always great to get that added level. I mean, this is this is uh, one of the big reasons we have listener mail, so we can hear from people out in the field or even in the fields, uh, if that's applicable to this situation. All right, this next one comes to us from Ghost Rock. <laughs> Ghost Rock says, hi, Joe and Rob, longtime fan Ghost Rock here. I wanted to chime in on the Rat King episode. My favorite pop culture reference to Rat Kings is from the Terry Pratchett Discworld novel, The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents. I have not read this one. Uh, The book combines stories of the Rat King with the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamlet. I won't go into too much detail, but the book could be almost a standalone novel in that it doesn't involve recurring characters like the Night Watch or the witches or any of the events that occur in Discworld and could be a generic low magic fantasy world. A cat, the titular Maurice, and his boy, along with some magically enhanced mice, are running a con game throughout the country where they scam the local officials into believing there is a horrible rat infestation, and then the boy will play his flute and magically rid the town of the pests. But actually, the educated mice and the cat are the brains behind the scheme, and the boy is more or less along for the ride. Trouble comes when they hit on a town that has a real rat infestation that is being controlled by a rat king. Hilarity, tension, and danger ensue. Thanks again for the show and all your hard work. I look forward to each episode. Ghost Rock.
0: Oh, I like that premise. It it. Uh, I'm I'm picturing it in the same visual style as that is uh, that illustration from that I think uh, 17th century book we looked at, you know, with the mm-hmm. the guy the guys with the batons. One of them seems to be about to beat a rat king, and the other one's like hitting a bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, I've I've never, uh, like I say, I haven't read this particular book, but I have read some uh, Terry Pratchett books in the past, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed the books of his that I've read, and I also. Really enjoyed the 2006 miniseries, uh, or like two-part series, TV adaptation of The Hogfather. Uh, that one is a semi-regular holiday viewing in my household. It uh, has a great cast. You have Michelle Dockery uh, as Death's daughter, Susan. Ian Richardson as the voice of Death. David Jason as Albert. Mark Warren as Mr. Tea Time. And David Warner as Lord Downey, uh, who's like the, the Lord of the Guild of Assassins. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. mm but anyway, Ghost Rock, thanks for writing in. And uh, yeah, I'll have to move some Terry Pratchett up on the reading list. All right, this next one comes to us from Daniel. Daniel uh, has a very interesting uh, email here regarding the Nutcracker episodes. It says, Hi, I listened to your Nutcracker episode and remembered an incident that I remember from my early childhood. We went to visit my grandmother, and I noticed she had a Nutcracker on the table I'd never seen before. This would be the late 70s. It was a big chunk of clear acrylic the size of an adult fist. It was cube-shaped with a hole through it big enough to fit even a walnut. There was a thread tapped into a half inch hole bored through into the center hole from one side of the cube. All right, I'm having trouble picturing this at this point, but let's keep <laughs> okay. going. This threaded hole had an acrylic rod with a thread and a wingnut-style finger grip turner on it. I was excited to see it work, so we bought some nuts, and with great anticipation, my dad began to screw the first nut. There was a sharp <laughs> crack, and the cube split in two. I don't know how <laughs> strong acrylic the acrylic uh, was or if there was some sort of an unseen flaw, but it never cracked a single nut despite being a big, beefy chunk of plastic. Maybe it was one of the decorative, non-functional ones you talked about. I've never before or since seen acrylic used for a device like this. Love the show. Cheers.
0: Daniel. I wonder why it would be uh, decorative and non-functional if it was like a big clear acrylic cube. Wouldn't it be? I could see it being decorative and non-functional if it was like a, a wooden soldier nutcracker.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it was. I mean, maybe it was kind of like a prototype, and it was never meant <laughs> to be used. And they're like, we should make this out of steel, and uh, instead, just the acrylic version gets passed down. I don't know. Uh, you know, speaking of the nutcracker, I have to mention over over the holiday break. Post Nutcracker episode, uh, we, my family, uh, my son and I, particularly, were only able to to fit in just a couple of Christmas stories before the actual Christmas Eve. But we pulled out uh, the, um, the Christmas edition from the Enchanted World uh, Time Life book series, oh. uh, which has some various Christmas things and, of course, lovely illustrations. But it it tells the classic version of the Nutcracker and has some wonderful. Um, just terrifying illustrations of, of course, the rat king or the mouse king, rather, and then uh, has these added elements that believe believer pulled right out of the original uh, short story that inspired all of this, in which the character of uh, of the uncle uh, takes on this, this added sinister tone because at the end, um, the little girl and her nutcracker prince, uh, you know, she asks that they be together forever, and he grants her wish, and she's essentially trapped inside this toy castle uh that the uncle had constructed so it's it's very haunting we had a nice nice haunting uh, holiday story to share with each
0: other there on christmas eve man they don't make the mail order mythology books like they used to those uh those time life enchanted world books are great they are. And I have, I've said it said it before. Yeah, these are worth seeking
1: out. They made millions of them, I think. So you can pick them up for pretty cheap off the used uh, book market and then used bookstores and so forth. Uh, sometimes the, the writing can maybe get uh, a little wordy, uh, maybe a little long winded. Um, but the illustrations are just amazing. And there's there's definitely some great content in there.
0: Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail.
0: Okay, I think we're going to do some weird house messages now, and this one comes from Luisa. Uh, subject line: Santa versus the Devil slash First Memories. Hi, Robert <laughs> and Joe. Your podcast is an endless source of knowledge, wonder, and entertainment. But the Weird House Cinema episodes are pure delight. I have yet to see most of the movies you talk about, and if I'm being honest, I probably won't, no matter how much I love listening to you talk about them. Imagine my surprise when you started talking about Santa vs. the Devil. I had a vague memory of it and wasn't entirely sure if it was the same movie. It was! I actually went to see this at a movie theater, probably in the original Spanish. I don't remember much, just the cherry red devil. Getting burned with a door handle. For me, this counts as an early memory, and what I remember very clearly is how that movie made me feel confused, uncomfortable, and a bit scared. I must have been about five years old, so not particularly young, but it made me go over what I think are my earliest memories, and all of them are anchored to a strong feeling. I don't remember, haha, if you came to a similar conclusion in your early memory episodes. Anyway, thank you so much for your wonderful work. I always learn something from you. Best regards and happy holidays, Louisa. Uh, well, thank you so much, Louisa. I love when we hear from people who saw these movies when they came out, especially if they were little kids, like seeing them in the oh the, yeah. is so great. It's been a while since we did the Before You Could Remember series, but it does seem right that, uh, that a lot of early memories—now, apart from— us commenting on the accuracy of like the narrative content of the memories that a lot of early memories do have some kind of strong emotional content to them that, uh, you know, it might be something that made you feel good and cozy or made you feel afraid or something like that.
1: And I have to say, confused, uncomfortable, and a bit scared is probably the appropriate (laughs) emotional response to this particular Santa Claus movie. Um, <laughs> especially if you're a child, but even if you're an adult, I think it's appropriate. Oh my God, those reindeer. Ha 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 ha. ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one uh, concerning our, our holiday films, because that wasn't the only holiday film we watched. We also watched I Come in Peace, aka Dark Angel, uh, which is technically a holiday action film, and we heard from Walter. Hey, guys, I just wanted to shoot you a quick message. Maybe I misheard, but did Robert say John Savage's mom in The Princess Bride? Uh, And true enough, uh, I did uh, misspeak. And uh, I I said John Savage, um, which would have been totally different, uh, totally different Princess Bride if you had had then 38 years old John Savage in the kid role. Uh, John Savage, of course, was in The Deer Hunter, in The Onion Fields, and also in a TV series titled Dark Angel. Not related to I Come in Peace. Yeah, not related to Come in, I Come in Peace. And also, John Savage, not related to Fred Savage, who, of course, was the <laughs> actor I meant to reference. Uh, but what anyway, if you
0: swapped them both? It was John Savage and The Princess Bride and Fred Savage and The Deer Hunter.
1: Yeah, I, I, love, I love these games. Swap them out, see how it changes the, the finished product. Another fun one is to think about actors Keith David and David Keith. They've never appeared in a movie together. Uh, but go ahead and swap them around and see what it does. Uh, you know, sometimes it have, may have no effect. Uh, sometimes it, it, uh, it may have a huge effect. Uh, <laughs> these are the, the kind of things that I, I think about as I uh, scroll through IMDb from time to time. Anyway, Walter continues and says, <laughs> But anyway, the real reason I wrote in was because I listened to Crockett's theme after you both talked it up. Um, I wanted to share that there is a whole genre of new artists putting out tracks trying to sound almost exactly like that song synthwave i've included a spotify link to my favorite synthwave playlist if either of you are interested in taking a listen i love the movie recommendations and i can't wait to see what new christmas themed movies you two will recommend in the coming weeks walter Uh, So, yeah, thanks for sending the Synthwave playlist as well. I'm I'm a fan of several of the artists on this particular playlist, uh, but there are a number of them here that I am not familiar with. So uh, I'm always excited to check out new music, particularly while working and driving, which
0: is exactly what Synthwave is for in my life. I've got a thought on this that I think, unfortunately, still only half formed, but it's basically like... I also find this type of music very appealing. The kind of music that, I don't know, makes me think of like the Terminator soundtrack or something. Maybe not Mm -hmm. exactly that, but music that is uh, very synth heavy and conjures feelings that I associate with movies from the 1980s. And it makes me feel like when I was watching those movies from the 80s as a kid. Uh I wonder how much of the appeal of this uh genre the synthwave type music is specifically for people our age or older who remember that kind of media landscape and it's a nostalgic appeal for that thing or whether this music might just be equally appealing I don't know if it just sounds good and is equally appealing to people who don't have those memories to sort of rejog
1: Oh, man, that's that's a tough one to figure out. I, I mean, I would guess it's probably both, right? Uh, I, I don't think you, you have to have like a specialized media diet going into appreciating something like, say, Boards of Canada
0: um, or, or other maybe like more overtly nostalgic acts. Um, yeah, I, but it, I don't know if I'd group Boards of Canada in with the kind of music I'm thinking of, the more, I don't know, like, you know, Crockett's theme evocative stuff.
1: Oh, really? Have you listened to Tomorrow's Harvest? Yes, I have. Yeah. I mean, that directly, in some cases, references a lot of the sort of like VHS era kind of music. So I think Uh those those inspirations, those notes are there. Uh, But Boards of Canada, I guess with with Boards of Canada and with a lot of other acts, it's like it is part of the tapestry. And the tapestry of sound is so intricate that you don't need to be able to identify all of the colors, you know, like there's mm. the experience of identify of, of, there's the experience of the colors without knowing exactly what they all are. Um So, you know, I, I guess the nostalgia can add to the appreciation, but of mm. course the nature of nostalgia is it can also make something beautiful a little bit sad. I mean, that's the whole, oh, the yeah. whole power of nostalgia. So I don't know, maybe there are cases where you're better off not having that nostalgia because you don't get the, you don't get as sweet of a taste, but you're also not getting that sour or the bittersweet as well.
0: I'm going to keep thinking on this one. Um, but anyway, thank, thank you for the message, Walter. Okay, Rob, do you mind if I wrap things up today by going to this message from Daniel about uh, RoboCop? Let's have it. Okay, Daniel says, greetings, Joe and Robert. Long time listener, but first time writing in since I thought I had something uh, insightful to share for once. After listening through the Weird House Cinema episode on Robocop and being a sound designer myself, I was a bit bummed out over the fantastic sound design by Stephen Flick and John Pospisil never being brought up which deserves mention as, in my mind, it sits right behind Star Wars as the most iconic and instantly recognizable in cinema. Fortunately, the sound design is pretty extensively documented as they, meaning uh, uh, Stephen Flick and John Pospisil, Wrote a letter required for the Oscar nomination process, which has since been preserved online for all to read. And folks at home, I uh, I did go and read this letter in full. It's worth looking up and reading because it describes in detail where a lot of the sound effects in RoboCop came from. It like describes the process they went through to try to create the sounds and like things that didn't work that didn't sound right and what they would en- what they ended up using. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it's very funny and surprising. Uh, And uh, Daniel goes on to describe some of these in his email. Daniel says, some of my favorite highlights include after many iterations, they settled on... uh, a footstep fully made from a prop of uh, truck timing chains embellished with a low frequency synthesizer thud and a distinct clink afterwards meant to evoke the spurs of cowboy boots pulling from some of the Western themes present in the film. It's great how like you can watch the movie so many times and never think Think about the fact that you're hearing it and making these subconscious associations to like other media and stuff. As soon as I read that, I'm like, God, that's right. It does kind of sound like spurs on cowboy boots. There's like a clink there, but I never consciously put that together, even though I'm sure at some level I did make that association.
1: Uh, You know, this is one of the things, and this kind of gets back to the other point about us, like, not mentioning it in the episode, is that great Foley work, like other, like, great um, effects in a film, can be kind of invisible. You don't necessarily think about them unless, you know, you have, you know, maybe you you have a little more insight into the world of it, or when it's bad, uh, (laughs) they stand out, or when there's something unnatural about it, but... When it's so perfectly executed, you're like, no, that's that's the sound Ed 209 makes. Exactly. I'm not going to second guess it for a second or think about how the magic happens.
0: This is why I think uh, in order to learn how to make good movies, you should watch a lot of bad movies (laughs) to like see to see, see, see how things don't work. And then you can go back and watch the good ones and appreciate the difference and understand when they do work. Because a lot of times when things do work, you can't you don't even notice them. You don't think about them. They're just invisible. Yeah, you got to be able to see the zipper on the monster suit to fully appreciate
1: it when it's not there.
0: Yeah. But to come back to Daniel's message here, Uh, RoboCop's dramatic movements like his punches or entering through the door of the convenience store being robbed are accentuated with these abstract synthetic whooshes that were directly inspired by the much more stylized and overstated audio of Asian martial arts cinema and a style that remains prominent to this day in anime. I think that's true too. That's that's great. Like the kinetic sound effects, there are things that are in reality generally silent, uh, but you but you hear them in the movie. There's a kind of like whooshing or a movement sound effect, a kind of advancing noise when when some when something is approaching or moving. Even though you if you were actually standing there and literally seeing an object moving in that way, you probably wouldn't hear anything. It's kinda of like in, in uh visual animation, like the movement lines drawn around something. Yeah. Daniel goes on, while not explicitly brought up in the letter, the application of the chorus-slash-flanger effect on his voice to make it sound more mechanical is also cleverly woven into the storytelling as the effect is removed from his voice once his behavior shifts to becoming more human. If I recall, the specific point is once he confronts Emil Antonowski at the gas station. Okay, yeah, I think I can hear this too that the the vocal processing is sort of turned down on his voice as he as he becomes more and more human throughout the film. JJ, could you put some chorus on my voice to make me sound more like a robot? What what does chorus on a voice sound like? I am issuing commands now. Engage. <laughs> Finally, Daniel says, Also, after listening to the Rat King episode, with both rats and Robocop fresh in my mind, I thought an excellent candidate for a future weird house cinema would be the 1983 movie Of Unknown Origin, starring Peter Weller as a yuppie losing his mind fighting an unusually resilient and destructive rat hiding in his fancy New York home. I had a hard time deducing what this movie was trying to be tonally, as the premise suggests something more psychological or perhaps comedic in nature, but while watching the trailer, it was clearly riding on the mood and imagery of poltergeist which had come out the year before happy holidays daniel um wow (laughs) i i don't know i haven't seen that that sounds weird i wonder if has that come up in another weird house episode rob the premise sounds kind of familiar but i know i Mm -hmm. haven't seen it we
1: i haven't seen it either but it has come up because the director was george p kosmatos um, oh. That's the, the father of Panos Cosmatos. So um, so we have mentioned it in
0: passing as being kind of a notable weird film in Peter Weller's filmography. Okay. Well, yeah, anyway, uh, thank you so much for this email, Daniel. Excellent, excellent uh, uh, message. And uh, thank you for bringing to our attention all this great sound design by Stephen Flick and John Pospisil. Absolutely worthy of a mention. And I'm sorry, you know, we... We do often end up focusing mostly on the cast when we talk about uh, people associated with the film. And uh, obviously there are tons of uh, there's tons of talent that goes into making any great movie. And a lot of that is behind the camera, not in front of it. Or is, uh, you know, the, the people who, who create the, uh, you know, create the things we see on screen or that we hear on the soundtrack. But we we oftentimes don't even know their names. It really emphasizes how much film is is a team effort. And it takes a lot of talented people to make a great one.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We'll have to think about this in the future.
0: Maybe we can, uh, so sometimes we
1: like to select something based in part on the knowledge of, uh, you know, certain individuals behind the scenes, be it, you know, be be at the, you know, the musical side of things or special effects. Maybe we should try and uh, come up with a sound effects first selection at some point and see, see what rises to the top. Mm. I endorse this idea. All right well we're gonna go ahead and close the mailbag there, but we'll be back with more next week I believe. In the meantime we'll just remind you hey core episodes of stuff to blow your mind. Um, science episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Fridays we set all that aside we do a little weird house cinema talk about a weird movie. You get your listener mail on Monday and on
0: Wednesday we have a short form episode of one sort or another that comes out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.
1: Monthly rate on the Visible Plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
2: Hey, Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story.